pop music at some point. You may have had your radio on waiting for the news as you drive in your car or whatever it may be. Or maybe for some of us here, this may seem very familiar. But uh, many, many years ago, there was a singer named Aretha Franklin, and she sang a now very famous hit. It's a classic called Respect. And in that song, she said she wanted a little R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I, uh, my, my, my grandson, who was 15, he heard me uh, uh, reciting this to myself last night, and he said, oh, you know, he looked at me very surprised that I even knew about that song, and so obviously uh, its fame has passed down the line today. And it's the, one of the reasons why it, it, was, it became popular, and, and, and maybe in some ways still popular today, uh, and the world sang along with it, it's because these words of respect vocalize what is part of our natural desire as human beings uh, to, to receive respect. We all want a little, in fact, all of us would confess, we want a lot of respect. Our desire is that people, uh, and this is a part of our fallen nature, of course, our desire is that people would treat us the way we think we deserve. We don't want to be disrespected. And it's as if we have this large elastic band inside all of us pulling inward. And so today, because of our fallen nature, uh, things like pride, selfishness, our desire to be thought of as good as, if not better than others, these are the things that characterize us, our choices, our attitudes. And apart from the regenerating power of Christ's Holy Spirit, we would actually all quite, uh, be quite content to go on living this way. But as the redeemed people of our Lord, He would not have that. He wants us to put to death that natural selfishness in us and to be growing in what we want to call selflessness this morning. And selflessness, boys and girls, is that uh, putting others before ourselves. Putting ourselves second place. Sacrificing our own, our own desires, our own wants, our own comforts. Uh, maybe sometimes even our own safety for the sake of others. And it would seem, looking at the context, and that's why we read from, uh, uh, from verse 1 and following, it would seem that some in the Philippian church, this is in the church in its infancy already, that they were neglecting the greater good for the sake of their own good. As if you recall verses 1 to 4. And so Paul not only exhorts them, he not only, not only calls them to correction, he holds up the supreme example of selflessness. That is the selflessness of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, uh, a more literal translation, let this mind be in you. And we might, we might even translate this as, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, uh, he's saying to the congregation and to us today, be growing in this attitude of putting others before yourself. This is what you must be aspiring to. You must be resolved to be pursuing this all through your lives to put others ahead of yourselves, to put yourself second place. And here's why. Because this was the attitude of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the one you must be striving to imitate. And so this morning, as we look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we want to summarize what we learn here with this theme. We believers confess Christ 
as the supreme example of selflessness. We believers confess Christ as the supreme example of selflessness. And we'll see three points. Uh, why we're to do this is because the first point, who, of, because of who he was. In the second place, what he did. And in the third place, what he has merited. And we'll see those as we walk through these uh, verses this morning, verses 5 through 11. Well, first of all, what makes the selflessness of Christ supreme? That is, uh, surpassing the selflessness of anyone else in history is the, the reality of who he was. And we hear that in verse 6. Paul describes Jesus this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is one of those verses in the Bible that is just packed with information, even though it's just one simple sentence. Verse 6 describes Jesus, we have to realize, before his incarnation, before he took on our flesh. We're looking here at who he was. Verse 6 tells us that before his incarnation, Jesus was divine. Paul describes it this way, using Greek philosophical language. He existed in the form of God. And we ask, well, what does that mean? Well, the word form is taken, as we said, from the world of Greek philosophy, and it does not mean what we take form to mean today. Today, when we use the word form, we mean that something looks like another thing. So it, it resembles it. It has the shape of another thing. And so if we ask someone to build us a table, we go to a carpenter and we say, I want you to build me a table. Well, we understand, and we hope he understands, that a table is, a, is a, uh, made out of wood. It has a flat surface with four legs that people can sit around and have a meal. Uh, and if he shows up to our door with a couch, we know that, well, he doesn't understand uh, what, a, what a, uh, a table looks like. Or boys and girls, we understand what mom means if she asks us on Saturday evening, perhaps, to come into the kitchen and help me make meatballs for Sunday soup. We understand that we have to roll those meatballs till they become round, right? We don't flatten them with our hands. That's not what a meatball looks like, right? Um, so we understand the uh, form. We use form in that way, uh, what, is, what something looks like. Well, the Greeks used the term form differently. When they spoke of the form of something, they, they were talking about the essence, the qualities, the characteristics of a certain thing. What is something comprised of? And so meatballs, of course, is made of ground beef or hamburger, as we call it, um, not tofu. At least it never, ever should be. Um, and a, a table is made out of wood, right? That's the characteristic of a table. It's woodness, right? That's how the Greeks used it. What is Paul saying here then when he says Jesus was in the, existed in the form of God? Well, Paul is saying that Jesus, before his incarnation, possessed all the divine attributes or characteristics of God. Scripture teaches, in fact, that before his incarnation, Jesus existed in the majesty and glory of his divinity. He was, in other words, everything God is. Everything uh, uh, divine, Jesus was before his incarnation. And so when we think about the character of God, or the attributes of God. Maybe we've learned this, uh, young people, in, in our Belgian confession classes. Um, we, we think of God as eternal, and so we have to ask, well, if uh, was Jesus eternal, 
right? Well, think of the words of Jesus that came out of his own mouth, right? He said, uh, before Abraham was, I am. That speaks of his eternality, right? We say, is God holy? Well, Jesus is called the Holy One in Luke 1.35. Before he became man, Jesus was worshipped by the angels. In, uh, we read that in uh, Hebrews 1 verse 6. Or if we we're looking for uh, a more explicit statement about the divinity of Jesus before his incarnation, we can think of John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God, right? Um, was Jesus almighty? Listen to what Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16 to 17. By him, all things were uh, created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. Okay, so all that belongs to the dignity, all that is distinctive of the majesty of God was in the possession of the Son of God before he became flesh and dwelt among us. So far, so good. But then Paul further teaches that even though Jesus was in possession of all of these things, he did not seek to hold on to it. And that's the sense of the confusing words, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the way our ESVs uh, translate it. Now, by the way, uh, this verse is notoriously hard to translate from the Greek. Ask any pastor or New Testament scholar, and it can be and has been mistranslated, misinterpreted in many ways and at many times. For instance, if on a Saturday morning the neighborhood Jehovah's Witnesses were to show up to your door, uh, they would open their New World translation, uh, which is a corruption of the, of the uh, original Greek and Hebrew, and they will point you to this verse in their New World translation. And they will say uh, that, uh, that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And uh, they'll say to you, you see, you've been misled by your church. Jesus wasn't God. Um, they translate this to say that Jesus didn't seek to grab for God's position, right? He didn't see it as something he should reach out to and grab and try to attain as Satan did. They, they would say to you that Jesus humbly accepted his place, which sounds nice, but it's wrong and it's blasphemous. The ESV translates this much clearer and much better. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When we think of the word grasp, we think of holding on to something, refusing to let it go. So what Paul is teaching here is this. Jesus was in the possession of divinity before his incarnation, but he did not seek to retain it. He did not fight to hold on to it. He refused to hold on, to grasp tightly to his divinity, to clutch it greedily. Uh, think of a, a toddler holding on to a cookie, right? What does he yell? Mine, right? And he locks his fingers up. He would not let it go. That's not what Jesus did. I heard a story once, in fact, of uh, many, many years ago of a child sitting on his mother's lap uh, in the church during Lord's Supper. And uh, the elders were passing around the plate with the bread. And this little toddler, as he saw this plate with the bread coming by, he suddenly reached out without warning to anyone. And he grabbed a hold of a couple of pieces of that bread. And of course, as toddlers would do, he then locked his fingers very tightly so that neither the mother nor the elder could get it from him. He was not getting, going to let go of his prize. Now, 
our Savior didn't need to reach out his hand and grab hold of divinity. It was his. It was in his possession. But the sense here is that he did not look at it as something to be grasped, something to be clutched tightly, something to be retained with every effort. Christ could have insisted upon his rights to be worshipped, to be served, to be revered. It would have been within his right to reject the idea of, of, of becoming a servant. He could have insisted that if he did come, he was going to come in a blaze of glory with all his heavenly majesty, but he didn't insist on any of this. In fact, the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. We hear in Hebrews 12 verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And congregation, this is why Christ is the supreme example of selflessness. He who came to save us was master of the house, the one to whom all worship and adoration is due, the one who was in very, in, in very possession of divinity, of all God uh, or divine characteristics and attributes. It's a wonder of wonders, the eternal Son of God, though he was worthy of it, came not to be served, but to serve. This is how great the love of our God is for us, that he would condescend to such a stunning degree. But that is what Jesus did to save us. Listen to verses 7 to 8. But emptied himself. Okay, so even though he was all these things, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we understand the height of glory in which Jesus existed before his incarnation. Now we're looking in the second point at the depth to which he descended. We're seeing in the second place what Jesus became in his incarnation. But before we, we, we get into these terms, I want you to notice something here very significant, that a great part of the emphasis here in the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a large part of the emphasis is on the voluntary action of the Son of God. What we see here is that none of this was forced upon him. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on a cross. God the Father indeed loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son for us. But what shines out of these verses is that Jesus came willingly and lovingly for us. He was not coerced. He was not guilted into coming to save us. But having said that, let us see now in this second point what, to what depths Christ lowered himself. We read that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Again, another strange expression. And some think that that means that Jesus discarded his glory and his divinity in order to, to become man. Well, it certainly does not mean that. 
Jesus was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And so it cannot possibly mean that. Some other translations put it this way, which, which is a little bit uh, helpful. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing, which again puts the emphasis on uh, the, the work of Jesus um, and on his own efforts. Well, how exactly then did he empty himself? How did he make himself nothing? Well, this is the way Reformed theologians understand it. The answer to that is not in what Jesus gave up, what he discarded, but what he took on. Okay, not what he gave up, but what he took on, what he assumed to himself. And we see in these verses, verses 7 to 8, that Jesus took on three things. He first of all emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And again, the word form is used in the same way Greek philosophers would use it. Points us to the reality and the fullness of his servanthood. In other words, we might say it this way. Jesus was not playing dress up. He indeed took on this form and this position. He placed himself in this lowly position under God's law and under man's authority. And again, this tells us about his selflessness. That's the depth of his love for us. Knowing the wrath of God that was to fall upon the children of Adam. And seeing that there was none who did good, not even one. Understanding that we had no other hope or savior. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to walk in perfect obedience to God's law for us. And to do this, he who was the Lord of the mansion had to become a slave without rights, without privileges. And it's in this lowly position that Jesus could, could say, my father is greater than I. Well, a second way Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing was by being born in the likeness of men and was in human form. Now, two things are indicated here. Uh, as far as Jesus looked outwardly, boys and girls, when you looked at Jesus, he could not be identified as anything but a man. Right? Sometimes you see this old, these old paintings, and um, sometimes the disciples or the apostles or Jesus has a, a halo on their heads. Well, Jesus actually did not have a halo on his head. Uh, there was no divine glow about him, except in the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, of course. When you looked at Jesus, what you saw was an ordinary man because he was fully man. He became flesh and dwelt among us, right? John 1, 14. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8, verse 3. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4, just as we are. He was made like his brethren, Hebrews 2, verse 17, right? But he also took on not only our outward features or characteristics, but also our inner characteristics as well. The Gospels reveal that Jesus took on every weakness that we experience. Sin accepted, of course. Jesus slept, didn't he? He wept. He hungered. He thirsted. He got tired. He certainly felt pain. He was tempted as we are, but yet was without sin. He suffered all the physical, mental, emotional, even spiritual struggles. When we think of the Garden of Gethsemane that we do. Even the anguish of death. 
And that's the third way that Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing. He became obedient even to death on the cross. Again, we have reason here to be amazed that the eternal God, the immortal one, humbled himself and took on a nature that was actually subject to death. And again, this was not forced upon him. Jesus voluntarily took it on. He certainly was not obligated to do any of this. He did not owe us this. It was all of love, all of grace and mercy. Congregation on the cross, nailed and bleeding, his life ebbing away and finally committing his spirit into the hands of his father, Jesus, the suffering servant, the son of God, was the supreme example of selflessness. He who is the true and living God incarnate died a wretched death by crucifixion, a death reserved only for thieves and slaves and traitors. He who saved others chose not to save himself for us. But we also see the supremacy of Christ's selflessness in what he merited. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now when we see that word therefore... When we're reading the Bible, we have to realize very quickly that it's a connection, right? It connects us to what we read before. Something resulted from the selfless sacrifice of Jesus, in other words. What happened? God the Father gave his approval to the perfection of his work. Paul says he highly exalted him. As a matter of fact, it's even stronger in the Greek the Greek uses an expression that could be translated, God hyper-exalted him. It, uh, the, the idea of, of using that expression is that Jesus was promoted to a position that was greater than he had before his incarnation. The contrast is between how he was in his lowly state as a servant in his humanity and his restoration to glory. Okay, so he went from uh, in the flesh to his glorious existence as the Son of God, and the second person of the Holy Trinity. He was resumed to his position of glory and majesty. This is what he prayed for, didn't he? In John 1, oh, 17, verse 5, when he prayed, Glorify me, Father, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. But there was more. God the Father, Paul tells us, also gave him the name which is above every other name. And verse 11 tells us what that name is. It's the name Lord. And to bear the title Lord, boys and girls, we know, is to hold a position of great and supreme and rank of dignity and honor. That Jesus is given that name Lord means that, and this is borrowing from the language of Paul in Ephesians 1, verse 21 and following, it means that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Okay, And so from this position, 
The sun rules in fulfillment of Psalm 2 with his iron scepter as head of his body, the church, as king over all the nations, all power and authority having been given to him. And this will result in two things here. Verse uh, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, first of all, we need to clarify that this is, um, this is adapted from the Old Testament. This is a quote from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament uh, prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 45, verse 23, where Isaiah makes this prophecy, uh, he speaks God's message to Israel, uh, these words, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so what, what is stressed in this Old Testament passage is that one day the whole creation will acknowledge their subjection to God. And there's a sense in the grammar of compulsion. We could translate it like this. Uh, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear, whether they like it or not. That's the sense of the, of the grammar in the Old Testament. And now Paul shows us that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the one before whom all will bow in subjection. If not today, someday, whether people like it or not. And yet, Jesus in spite of knowing all of these things, was the supreme example of selflessness for us. He did not let pride or haughtiness fill his mind as he dwelt on earth among us. So, what does this mean for all of us then? Well, let's rem remember the command that, that led Paul to set Christ's example before us. Verses 3 to 4. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and to us today, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, and then uh, he begins to describe Christ. So, so, so the command here is to put others ahead of yourself, look to the interests of others, and what is, who is the model, who is the example, who are we to look to? The Lord Jesus Christ. As disciples of Christ, we are now called to live lives of obedience and thankfulness, imitating Him, to be putting ourselves second place to others, just as Jesus did for us. We are to be seeking the good of others. We are to be uh, putting their needs, their feelings, their desires ahead of our own. Well, let's be honest, like the Philippians, we don't, do we, quite often. Every Christian carries in their hearts scars that come from the unkind words or actions of fellow Christians. And, and perhaps that, that makes it hurt just a little bit more because we expect more from each other. And perhaps we're all guilty of, of wounding others as well. How often don't we think of ourselves as more significant than others? How eager are we 
quite often to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves, to go to that brother or sister to establish peace. Not just to make the point or to stick it to them or to criticize them or to administer one final blow. How often are we willing to just go to our brother or sister to make peace? How much of the disunity and grumbling that goes on in the churches of Christ today. Go on, because quite often we are more selfless or selfish than selfless. How then do we change? We look to Christ. That's the beginning. That's where we start. We look to Christ, the supreme example of selflessness. We seek His help. And we remember that Jesus, our Savior, Having done this for us, he now wants us to serve others without thought of reward. He wants us to show real concern without craving praise for ourselves. He wants us to help others succeed without our own heart being filled with envy. He wants us to seek the good of others even if it means that we are neglected, that we never even receive a thank you. He wants us to pray passionately for others, even though we may never hear a word of thanks for it or acknowledgement. That's selflessness. That's Christ-likeness. That's imitating Christ. The pride and the self-love have to go. I'll end with a brief story, an example from my own life. This happened actually a couple of years ago, but I had to return something to Walmart. And when I went to customer service, I was told that, uh, you know, we, we are, we'll take the return, but somebody from electronics has to come and examine the product first before we take it, make sure it's fine. And I said, you know, that, that's fine. No problem at all. Um, but the wait was long. I'm standing there waiting for this, uh, this clerk, this associate to come to examine this product. And the longer I waited, the more irritated I became that I had to stand there for so long. And then the associate appeared, slowly pushing herself along in her wheelchair because she had no legs. And my impatience, my irritation disappeared as fast as it had come. You know, it, it, it took something that drastic to remind me that, of how prideful I am. But it shouldn't. We all should look to Christ and be thinking about his sacrifice every day of our lives. And remember how great is his love for us. And so with his help, let us strive to live humbly and thankfully in our homes, loving our wives, putting her first place, submitting to our husbands, respecting them honoring boys and girls, our parents, teaching and encouraging our children, respecting the elderly, caring for, even even our mean and crude neighbor who, who needs the gospel, honoring the church of Christ. Let this Christly attitude of selflessness be in us. Follow in the steps of Christ. Model him because the Lord will give us humility if we pray for it earnestly. Amen.